0: Welcome to the Bear Market Brief. I'm your host, Aaron, and if you're new or you haven't joined us in a while, this is a podcast about the intersection of politics and economics in Eurasia. Today, to kick off 2023, we're returning to our stomping grounds, Russia. Specifically, how is its economy doing and how are leaders trying to mobilize said economy for the war effort? Joining us today is Nick Trickett, once the editor-in-chief of The Brief and a longtime friend of this podcast. He'll give us a quick update about what's keeping him busy these days, and we'll jump right in. So, let's investigate. Welcome back, Nick. Uh, quickly bring us back to up to speed about how you've been. What's keeping you busy these days? Hey, Aaron. It's, uh, it's good to be back.
1: The, the main professional development is that I'm currently um, now working for White & Case as a BD manager. So, um, to be clear, anything I'm saying here is in a personal capacity and no way reflects on my employer, and has nothing to do with my job. Um, so just, you know, as a heads up on that front, um, but other than that, um, I am also working on a book, uh, for Hearst, uh, that, that is titled Empire of Austerity, uh, Russia and the Breaking of Eurasia. Um, hopefully it'll be out come, let's say like November, about December for the Christmas season. Cause obviously everybody needs more, another book for, for Christmas, but yeah, so uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Uh, it's definitely, definitely a haul.
0: Well, while I have you, and before we dive into the subject matter for today, tell us a little bit about the book. What are you exploring?
1: So the idea is to kind of paint a, a contemporary history of, of the evolution of Russia's political economy from, from roughly the default in 98 up till the invasion in 2022 and explaining how essentially like Russia's kind of bias towards it and the, the degree to which it's wired for stagnation and, and obviously explicitly through austerity politics the last like eight, nine years. But even before then, there's still an austerity bias in Russian policymaking and economic policy, I would argue, um, explains how the conflict developed, how it worsened conflicts across
0: Eurasia and why it went so badly. So by austerity, you mean that the central government is just not spending money, trying to keep its deficit debt down? Yeah, yeah. So I I would say like like
1: the the traditional term being the neoliberal. Obviously, I think the term doesn't really actually describe Russia very well, but but kind of
0: neoliberal policy biases that you have amongst Russian elites. Understood. So let's jump into it today. This is the first episode uh, for 2023. And I'm wondering, how is the state of Russia's economy as we kick off the year? Um, are the wheels coming off? Are there bright spots? Is it somewhere in between, as is usually the case?
1: I think I, saying the wheels come, come are coming off is probably a bit extreme. Um, but I would say that things are definitely getting worse, not better. And, and the, the bright spots that you might have seen last year and the kind of relative so-called overperformance of the economy are starting to drive a bit. I think the, the best way to think about it is that like we don't really have any good data on firms essentially exhausting the viability of the capital goods they've imported from the west they can no longer get access to so like you know let's say you're a mining company um or like a an oil firm that uses proprietary software that you can no longer get from the west for like exploration purposes that that process is now less productive right so you're now wasting more money on a less productive process to try to extract more resource out of the ground or you know if you can't import like a key um Little component to fix up a rail wagon, and suddenly, and suddenly, rail wagons start breaking down. I mean, we've already seen them halt production of the so-called innovative wagons, and which basically means that they're defaulting towards using older rolling stock that carries less cargo per per unit. So that, that that's a, a, another kind of big productivity loss, and so on. Those kind of processes are unfolding now more so than they were last year.
0: So I think that's kind of the big story that is not yet shown up in the data. So. Is that something that would be hurting Russia now or more something that will be uh, a source of pain and further stagnation in the future? Both, Um, because
1: what it's doing is is kind of recreating the type of um, bullwhip effects we saw from the COVID pandemic globally, but, you know, at a smaller scale on a sector basis in Russia, right? I mean, obviously the the most infamous case, and there's some speculation and debate about how accurate this is, is that the surge in imports of, you know, breast pumps, refrigerators, and washing machines via Kazakhstan and Armenia in particular are basically a, a channel to cannibalize semiconductors for military uses in the country. Now, I think that's not entirely true, but I would say that when you look at, at survey data, we've seen that re- uh, demand for repair services for these goods has risen by as much as 70% in a lot of regions in Russia. So by implication, I mean, we, we know for a fact that the sales data on who's buying the stuff at, at the end does not tell us who's doing the buying. So it's probably the case that the military is actually consuming more and more consumer goods, for instance. So, yeah, so I think I think it's a mix of both. And I also think that, uh, you know, we're only now starting to see a, a kind of more full effect of the decline of incomes that people experienced last year and, the, and how it's going to show up um, across businesses as they start to go under or, or face more strain.
0: Now, at the same time, I've seen kind of a puzzling trend in some of the data I've, I've followed that while this is happening, and I think we can talk more about data quality, what we're seeing <laughs> from where, but it seems like at least Russian consumers, measures of economic confidence have been pretty stable, if not positive. So how do we square that circle?
1: Well, a couple of ways to think about it. I think one, um, when you always assume things are bad, it's kind of hard to actually read too much into the data. Um, It's especially if someone's already adjusted their mental baseline to things being awful and then it wasn't quite as awful as you expected, right? So you, you would actually have some of that showing up, I think. Another way to think about it is that in 2020 and 2021, there was a really large surge in home buying because of the, the mortgage subsidy program. So you have a lot of people who basically couldn't buy anything else or were sitting around or kind of realized, wow, like at least I can own like a hard asset that's a roof over my head that, that I enjoy living in, um, despite how bad things are economically. And then they've started kind of making up new homes and so on. And I think that has somewhat shifted people's uh, perception of, of how they're doing, while at the same time, those programs are either running out of actual credits because you, usually there's a kind of uh, a fixed amount of loans that are allowed to be issued. Or otherwise, it's drying up because demand is collapsing, and we, we're and we're already seeing that happen slowly um, on the housing market. It accelerated very, very quickly after mobilization started in late September.
0: I want to ask, shifting to some of the, I guess, contingencies you could say relating to the to the war itself. Um, actually, President Zelensky of Ukraine had a joke, not to to make light of anything happening there. Uh, between kind of traditional Ukrainian uh, Jewish joke uh, from Odessa, where there's two men talking, they say, hey, do you hear? Uh, Russia's at war with NATO. Oh, my God, what's happening? Uh, How are the Russians doing? Oh, they've lost almost 100,000 soldiers, thousands of tanks, aircraft, hardware. Oh, my God, how's NATO doing? Oh, NATO, they haven't showed up yet. So what I want to get at is the extent to which Russia is really all in. Um, There was a prior... Mobilization around where they conscripted, I think, three hundred thousand people. And there's another one, kind of in the offing, it may or may not be coming. Um, but thinking about what that means for the economy, like moving the economy to a war footing, what is, what does that actually mean in practice beyond giving people guns and training them to fight?
1: Yeah, so I think the the way to think about it is that they they are obviously directing more resources to military. They've increased the budget spending for um, for defense and security services dramatically. And they're clearly trying to run the factories they have in hand you know on 24-hour cycles you know make up for losses um, etc but they're they're really unable to actually go to war footing um, for the simple reason that or I shouldn't say simple reason but for, for the reason that it's incredibly difficult for them to coordinate what's happening across the economy because of the way they've, they've actually structured the economy and, and the way that they, man- they manage economic relationships so you know for example it was much easier in the Soviet system um, to, to get everybody to make sure they hit their production targets to build tanks to fight the Nazis because there was a, a disciplinary apparatus and, a, and like a party system and so on that structured all, all those relationships. And even though there was still obviously, you know, theft and draft and so on taking place, it was much easier to actually crack down on it. Whereas in the current system, that, that's actually just an impossibility. It's not really how it functions. I mean, we, we see the most extreme case of this being the recent decision to essentially stop requiring um, state, servants, say people people who work in the state service at various levels to uh, to publish their earnings. So that tells us that they're trying to make sure they have the loyalty of people who work for the state by allowing them just to do whatever they want, which obviously isn't going to be inefficient when it comes to what's happening. So that, that that's a high-level way of thinking about it. I think the, the other more kind of low-level way to think about it is that the political system is not designed to, a, to adjust to a shock where everybody is being employed and everybody's being paid, and on top of that, being paid in a situation where they, there's more kind of supply constraints on consumer goods because of you know export bans or controls from the west um, and financial sanctions and if if you think about it this way if 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 people's incomes were to actually rise because they're employing everybody and, and kind of running the economy as hot as possible to make sure they're making as many things that they need and you know investing in more productive uh, productive capacity and all that um you would likely see a, a very large surge in inflation and that's obviously like a massive you know like Weak spot for the regime. They're, they're worried about it because of pensioners. They're worried about it because of the fiscal constraints they face right now, and so on.
0: So, are the constraints here? You mentioned graft, but it sounds like there are maybe more structural concerns at at play here. The, the I think, inflation concerns. Um, if everyone has a ton of money that they're going to spend, that you know makes prices increase. Is is that really the the kind of key node, the the mechanism driving the hesitancy?
1: I mean, I think I think it's a, it's both. Um, now, I I don't know that inflation is necessarily by default, the main one, I think in some, in some respects, the technocrats still have some pull to actually kind of impose a hard fiscal restraint, if you will, on, on the state spending to to pursue these, these war aims. And that's probably also at play. But if you think about um, a kind of more inflationary economic context where, you know, you have like full employment and all that, it is true that because of the institutional structure of the Russian economy and like how, how many layers there are, and when it comes to the actual state, because how large the country is. Um, and, and the ways in which different interest groups you know, have, have captured policy at the local level, the regional level versus the federal level, et cetera, that kind of economic structure would lead to an explosion of more grafts and also a loss of political control. It'd be much, much, it's much, much harder to get people to actually you know, stay in line when they're actually well off or, or doing better or otherwise have more of a, of a kind of a means of saying no to the powers that be. So, for example, going on strike is a lot more meaningful if you actually are trying to run a true war economy. Than in the current circumstance where you know people are terrified of having nothing, so they're not going to withdraw their labor. But that that's not just a matter for like coal miners or people working in factories. That's also true for politicians and political figures and so on. Like they they're they're unable to kind of extract themselves or extract themselves from the system or say no, because they're they're too caught up in the fact that there are no other options they have. So I mean, the last decade in particular, we've seen you know, businesses has become totally dependent on the state, but perversely in such a way that the state's also not spending money. <laughs> So it's kind of this weird, vicious, vicious cycle where this uh, essentially Russian economic policy is constantly reducing the productive capacity of the economy as opposed to increasing it. Uh, and we're seeing that kind of play out right now is, and the, the kind of consequences of that, I would say.
0: Making it harder to to ramp up production, let's say, for... Uh, in continued war in Ukraine. Can we talk about some of the things that Russia has done uh, to, to ramp up capacity? I mean, first thing that comes to mind is is, is drafting, what is it, 300,000, 300,000, 350,000? What does that mean for the economy, just pulling that labor force out? But broadly, what has Russia done? Let's talk about some of the kind of... Publicity.
1: So, I mean, conscription, they, 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 they pulled 350,000 people out of the workforce to fight. So what, let's say that's in the range of 0. 0.3 or 0.4% of the formal workforce, not including uh, illegal labor, which gets a bit more complicated.
0: Which is a huge percentage.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Especially in a context where, you know, in the last 18 months to two years prior to the invasion, um, you saw like a, you know, a large degree of labor shortages from the loss of migrants from Central Asia in particular that's that's definitely eased but like i mean th- there were there were like systemic shortages of labor for construction for instance you know before the war began
0: and not to mention the young people and the tech experts who have yes. left the country too
1: yes though many of them are still working for russian companies so, and the and the duma is now trying to tax them d- differently to to essentially make them pay for that so we'll we'll see how that plays out but i mean that that's that's the most obvious one obviously they've they've increased um defense spending by a huge margin so essentially what they're doing is you know, starving the rest of the economy and throwing more money at the military to, to just procure goods they need from the civilian sector. Um, you've seen the creation of the coordination kind of council led by Mishustin and other people around him, who, I mean, their, their job is basically to make sure that the military gets everything it needs when it comes to physical inputs. Now, practically speaking, Mishustin and others have, have, have kind of toyed with the idea of trying to mobilize SMEs and, you know,
0: the, Small and medium enterprises yes, for sorry. those oh, yes. listening.
1: Um, and, and, you know, to in the kind of similar size firms to redirect light industrial production towards essentially making kit for, for soldiers that are, that are going to war and so on. So there hasn't really been as much of like a formalized process to that. You know what I mean? They're, they're not like straight out nationalizing anything, but they're definitely leaning on businesses to do that. And, I, and that, that's also part of what's taking place where businesses who have lost their markets, are are losing profits because uh, people aren't spending as much money, et cetera, uh, in part because their incomes are falling. Uh, You know, they're trying to pivot what they're doing towards serving the state wherever they can. So that's, that is definitely taking place. I think um, beyond that, it gets harder and harder to really know because the economic news we have is so piecemeal and and so much is is taking place now informally where essentially people are probably making phone calls constantly to just try to make sure that shipments arrive on time um, or else, or else promises are being made about offering like a subsidy or, like, like informalized kind of tax relief to help offset the massive increase in logistical costs, for instance, that exporters have faced. That's, you know, that's hard to track. The more recent stuff that I think is probably the bigger story is they're quite consciously trying to raise taxes on, on any any resource exporter they can. So oil and gas obviously gotten hit. Gas in particular um, paid a massive kind of windfall tax um, to help top up the budget. Um, they're expanding that towards the coal sector uh, which is a bit crazy, given that Russian coal exports are often trading at discounts of 50 or 60 percent against market benchmarks at the moment. Um, and and, and, and the, there's also an ongo- ongoing attempt to raise more money from the metals, um, metals industry. So it's yeah. So, so I think what they're basically doing is soaking anyone who has money to just cover the budget and, and then trying to direct more economic activity towards the state wherever they can.
0: So I was talking with uh, another expert in the field recently, and we kind of came to the conclusion, you know, using different verbiage that Russia is essentially mortgaging its future at present, that they're basically taking all this capital and money that would have been invested into future production, which is important for a lot of reasons, and just turning it to immediate use. Uh, Agree or disagree?
1: So I would say that Russia has been mortgaging its future since about 2008. <laughs> so it's I think the, I think the bills come due is kind of the way that I would look at it. No, I I definitely agree that that's that's taking place, and I, you know a lot of, of Russia specialists will, will will go to great pains to explain how Russia always manages to muddle through doing exactly that. Um, but I think the difference is that um, the the, the trade offs that are taking place today are much much more immediate than they were, let's say, in 2014, 2015, and and, and they'll be felt within months as opposed to years. So. I would expect that this year's GDP contraction, for instance, to be deeper than last year's, at least according to the official data, which I don't really trust anyway. But you know, we, we still have it. Especially because uh, we saw corporate investment into um, into production, basically, like into capital goods and so on, fall uh, significantly last year, and it was really only offset by state spending on the defense sector. But the new, the kind of new budget plan for the next three years is basically a, another austerity budget. So it, it, there's going to be more pullback and more pullback over time. So I think I think that like the mortgaging the, the future like metaphor definitely works, but it, it's it's a much much faster timeline than the past.
0: So one of the things that you mentioned in your latest edition of OGS and OFZs, uh, your newsletter on Russian political economy, I'll include a link and the podcast description. I would recommend it to people following Russia. Was talking about um, systems of Rent distribution. Now, I'm going to hazard a guess and say we're not talking about the Broadway musical here. so tell me tell me about rents in Russia, what that means, and how that figures into the political economic system surrounding kind of Putin's orbit here.
1: yeah, so rent in in a generalized kind of political economic sense really refers to something that amounts to an economic privilege or kind of an unearned cash flow. So the traditional example, would be the money that you that is a kind of country realizes by taxing its oil and gas production, for instance, uh, amounts to taxing rents from oil and gas, i.e., the money that is earned beyond the cost of production. Because uh, th- that is money that you're earning for an asset for like a resource just sitting somewhere. You know, you, you don't even have to do anything with it. You don't, you don't even have to refine it or sell it to anybody you, you necessarily. Even though in the case of Russia, they definitely um, build that into how they tax it to realize some kind of return. Now. I think the importance in the past has been that, you know, when the Russian economy was growing, for instance, um, back in, in the 2000s, you know, you, you had systems of so-called rent distribution whereby, you know, you would, you would tax the oil and gas sector heavily, um, you know, take that money, redistribute it to like public pensions, et cetera, but also redistribute it to, you know, friends um, and, you know, kind of certain companies or state-owned companies via the procurement system. So for instance, like you know, like non-competitive tenders for state procurements is, is a classic way that, in which the, the state distributes money to, to basically people who are friendly to the regime. You know, or you'll have one guy who registers like nine different companies bidding on one contract that no one quite knows who owns which one. But he, of course, no matter what happens, he gets the the end money. And then that, you know, that, that money flows to him. So that's kind of like a classic mechanism to maintain influence and to some extent control. If you, if you kind of pair that with, the attempts to centralize political power. What you kind of get over time is that people have to go to Moscow or have some kind of connection in Moscow and the regions across the country and different economic sectors to be able to win major contracts for big projects. And so you, you kind of build in a system of, of, of patronage into uh, strategic sectors or sectors that are politically sensitive. It, it's less the case when it comes to things like retail, but um, you, know, it, you know food retail you know, is another good example, but even in that space, you know, th- there's obviously always an element of kind of extra legality at play, and and we definitely see the authorities step in and, and pressure different companies to do different things. So so a rent, in this sense, is kind of like a privilege of, of money from the state. Now, the problem there is that, obviously, prior to the invasion, you already had eight eight to nine years of non-growth in the Russian economy. And, and when an economy stops growing, uh, it basically means that fights over rents become zero-sum because the pie is no longer growing. You know, in the same way that during downturns in a lot of, a lot of markets, you expect you know businesses to consolidate between the kind of players who have the most money in hand. You've you've seen the same thing actually happen politically to some extent in Russia over the last eight nine years, especially the oil and gas sector. But you know, like Rossnab being the infamous, infamous case, but there are other examples as well. And the problem now, of course, is that you have like another negative economic shock without any hope of growth. And and Russian kind of economic policy at present is not designed in such a way as to generate any growth. Um, in, in fact what's happening is the military is essentially cannibalizing or the state is cannibalizing demand that would have otherwise gone towards more sustainable purposes. You know, so for example, like if you think about a weapon, you know, the, the, the production of the weapon generates demand for the goods and services to kind of make the weapon, but the actual weapon gets exhausted very quickly in combat. Right. So it, it's, it's a very, very low uh, efficiency kind of thing. It's not sustainable. It doesn't like generate a, a longer term relationship that le- the kind of positively feeds back. So now when you have this much pressure all at once, And you have rent the kind of amount of rents available diminishing structurally uh that tends to intensify competition over those rents so you would you would tend you expect to see more uh, elites even if not publicly doing so privately fighting over who gets which contracts um trying to lobby for policies that are favorable to them etc and and kind of and you'd see like fewer and fewer players consolidating more influence essentially over different parts of the political system um, or or the economy or, or both and and that's a very different context then what we saw pre-invasion only because um, one of the ways in which Putin and the regime has managed to maintain itself um, so effectively is that power has been very distributed. Obviously, they centralize who get certain rents, but they also they also make sure that they're replaceable. And that becomes harder the more that you try to gear all economic activity towards one sector, in this case, the military, and, and you have fewer and fewer hands kind of actually controlling those cash flows.
0: Does that mean someone could challenge Putin?
1: I don't think that's a realistic possibility for the foreseeable future but I definitely think that it's harder and harder for, for Putin to impose order on the system. So it, I think the way to think about it's less that that regime change is coming and more that the regime's much more, you know, explicitly losing control over 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 events as they develop.
0: Yeah, I think the way I used to describe this in my political risk days is imagine the solar system and the sun is like losing a bit of gravity. So everything's still orbiting but maybe a little more erratically, a little more difficultly. Although we'll see, we'll see how this year's play out. Uh, Or this year plays out rather. Uh, One of the things I wanted to ask about uh, as well is in your, in your most recent uh, edition of OGs and OFCs, you talked about the character of growth. this kind of hollow growth model. Um, Can you delve into that a little bit and how we see kind of a, or a saw rather a, a mismatch between of exports and domestic consumption. I thought that was interesting and I think it would be helpful if you could break that down.
1: Yeah. So I mean if if you want to think more broadly about, about the field and like relative recent literature, et cetera, um, it, you know, one one of the one of the reasons why Russia had such a hard time with the economic transition from communism and the collapse of the Soviet Union was it was too rich and too urbanized and too industrialized to be China so you know it couldn't become this this really competitive exporter you know selling uh, manufactured goods because it was it simply it was too wealthy relatively speaking to do so uh, labor costs were too high now that's that kind of has come back to haunt russia because its growth in the 2000s was it was not an oil boom per se i think people um, misunderstand that it was a, it was a consumption boom that was financed by oil so the real reason why growth was so strong was because oil revenues were being redistributed to the public and generating, you know, more investment, which then generates income, obviously, when, when businesses, you know, build new plant and so on, that that leads to people making more money because people have to be employed to do so, et cetera. So, so that that kind of consumption was really what drove Russian growth, uh, the first the first decade of, of this century. Um, and then after the financial crisis, in part because of the the mismanagement, I would argue of the response to the crisis, um, that's that that model dried up. It ceased to work. Now, obviously, um, you have people like Kudrin and others, you know, systemic liberals argue that, um, you know, I would argue relatively peripheral reforms would be enough to essentially generate growth. You know, like like rule of law, et cetera. That all obviously matters. That makes a huge difference for investment, but. In reality, uh, what what really happened was that Russia basically just reached a level of, of of wealth per capita where it could no longer really reliably grow by just exporting more. It had to consume more. But uh, the political system was designed in such a way that exporters were the dominant political block uh, when it comes to the budget. In this case, oil and gas, but so others as well, and also employment. So, like you know, if you think about coal mining, you know, coal, if, if coal mining were, were to collapse as a major exporting industry, it would be a huge problem for regional economies um, in in eastern Siberia. So.
0: So they are basically. Why would it be? Why would it be a problem for Eastern Siberia specifically? It's cold.
1: Well, it's what's well, cold. Uh, it's also obviously like like the the kind of center for most uh, coal mining in the country. And 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 when you think about the number of industrial towns that rely on one or two industries, those industrial towns are often linked into supply chains that are supported by exporters like the coal industry. Now, and the, the example that I always go back to that I think is really really instructive and useful is rail wagons. If you look at like the kind of heavy industry that produces um, rolling stock in Russia its demand domestically is underwritten by exporting industries that that need the, the wagons to be able to move stuff abroad. Coal, uh, you know, generally is moved by um, gondola cars uh, and they make up the kind of single largest portion of the rolling stock fleet. So I just think they're a useful kind of, you know, example to point to. Um, but that goes back to oil and gas as well. You know, like the, these oil and gas companies, they then need procurements for, let's say, uh, steel pipes. And so they, they go to a domestic firm with a procurement contract and do that and so on. So these like Exporting industries that are ultimately dependent on a foreign demand, in general at least, generate lots and lots of contract activity for domestic industries that um, are historically not as competitive when it comes to exports, but also have been kind of de facto subsidized through um, and interventions on the in terms of energy prices, you know, labor agreements that kind of create a situation where labor doesn't push too hard for excessive wage increases and so on. So essentially, Russia was relying on. Its exporters up until the invasion to underwrite demand for, for the heavier industrial base um, and, and, and aspects of the consumer industrial base that it inherited from the Soviet period in, in the 1990s, early 2000s. Um, you know, th- th- of course, what then happens is the financial sanctions make it such that when the Russian economy, you know, exporters earn dollars or euros, they can't really do very much with them. So it, it short circuits that kind of relationship because like if you're an oil, if you're like a coal miner or whatever you're not going to be able to just, you know hoard dollars and then convert that into demand uh, or you know and pay people with it really meaningfully. So you, now those exporters are forced to obviously buy rubles and then negotiate new contracts um, that are entirely dependent upon um, domestic price levels and and domestic policy. I um, think the other thing about it is obviously that you know. Consumers in Russia you know import a huge portion of their consumption, right so I, I think by one estimate back in twenty twenty one something like three quarters of the total monetary value of consumer goods in Russia are imported when it comes to like the, the consumer, average consumers kind of consumption in a given year, so that's obviously massively affected by the illiquidity of the ruble i, I and, and you know the, the fact that the ruble's no longer easily convertible into foreign currencies the way it used to be. Um, the fact that you know, like as I mentioned earlier, like, like like logistical costs have gone up for importers and exporters because so many companies now refuse to just work with Russian clients. Uh, insurers don't want to insure Russian cargos because it's too politically risky, et cetera. And so as a result, this kind of growth model that had exhausted itself, whereby exporters had helped make the country richer but then it, it kind of hit a ceiling is, is now reversing, right? It's going into decline because the, the way that the sanctions were structured, undermines the relationship that there that there's a, has historically sustained consumption domestically through the, the exporting sectors of the economy.
0: And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Russia's economy as we start in 2023. Rosie, as always, um, but we'll be exploring these issues uh, in many episodes to come this year. Nick, thank you for joining us.
1: Now, of course. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks to Nick for joining today. And to you, listener, be sure to follow BMB Russia and Eurasia at the Twitter handle at Bear Market Brief. BMB Russia and Eurasia is a project of the Foreign Policy Research Institute. That's FPRI, a nonpartisan think tank based in Philadelphia. For more information on this initiative and many others, drop by fpri.org. We'll catch you soon.